0: You please turn once again to the book of Acts, chapter 14. <clears throat> We've been following the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on not only their first missionary journey, but the first Christian missionary journey ever. The Great Commission. Of the Lord Jesus Christ was to preach the gospel first in Jerusalem and then Judea and all Samaria. And then they were to take it to the ends of the earth. These men were sent out by God and by the church in Antioch of Syria. They sailed to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean where they went through the whole island, it says, and from there they sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. Uh, going up now, they, they made their way up by foot to Antioch and Pisidia. And, uh, then we saw that they, um, they came to Iconium, where we looked at last week when we were looking at chapter 14. But you, one of the things that you see is that the further they get away from Jerusalem, And from the worship of the one true God, the darker and more pagan and idolatrous the world becomes. Which is only understandable the further away you get from the light, the greater the darkness. Now we'll read in just a moment uh, that in past generations, God permitted the nations to walk in their own ways. We think that's a good thing. Walk in your own ways. Do your own thing. That's what young people, as soon as they get old enough, you know, I want to do my own thing. I don't want to be told what to do. Let me go my own way. Do my own thing. Well, it didn't end up so well for the prodigal son when he did that, did it? And it really doesn't end well for any of us who would go our way. Uh, the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Going our own way, we go astray. And these nations who were allowed to walk in their own ways, well, we see the result of that greater and greater darkness. Would you follow with me as we read beginning in verse 8 of chapter 14, and we'll read through verse 18. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles apostles Barnabas and, and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good Gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So we see that this story begins with the healing of the man who was crippled from birth. It sounds very reminiscent of another healing we read earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 4, where we read of Peter and John going up to the temple where they see this crippled man by the gate who is begging for alms. Matthew Henry said that both of these miracles were designed to represent the impotency of all the children of men in spiritual things. They are lame from birth till the grace of God puts strength into them. For it was when they were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, while I believe that these examples of these two miracles are good illustrations and good analogies of these spiritual things, I don't think that we can say that this was the spiritual lesson they were designed to teach. As I've said many times before, and the Scriptures teach us very plainly, that the miracles of Christ and the disciples and of his disciples were intended primarily to validate both the message and the messengers. That makes sense, doesn't it? In fact, we we have that said here in in chapter in chapter fourteen, verse three. Notice it says therefore they stayed there a long time. That is in Iconium. Speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You see, it's not that they were preaching and then they were also doing the miracles as though they have nothing to do with one another. No, the miracles were validating the message and the messenger. You see. The writer to Hebrews asked this question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Who, which at first, talking about the message of salvation, first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. You see, this is why God gave these miracles to validate the message and the messenger. And we see, as we read, the the response of the multitude was a little over the top, wouldn't you say? Uh, In fact, it was a whole lot over the top. Uh, They misread the signs completely. Not only, as our brother said, they misread natural revelation, they misread the nature or the uh, the purpose of the signs. Uh, They didn't believe that these men were sent by God with a message from God. That's what they should have deducted from these miracles. They believed that they were actually gods who had come down in human form and now they're ready to offer a sacrifice to them. So we want to look at this passage and we're going to begin by looking at the miracle itself. Uh It, it's, it speaks of this certain man. Now, uh, again, back in Iconium, uh, we're told that the missionaries stayed there and God bore witness uh, to the message, to the words of grace, granting these signs and wonders. And this miracle, like virtually all of the miracles in the New Testament, was utterly astounding. Uh, that's one thing. You look at any miracle that Jesus performed or his disciples... And you're left with no other explanation than this is something God did. It wasn't psychological. It wasn't something that was just uh, they could manipulate and make it look like something happened when it didn't. It wasn't like so many of the modern day miracle workers or uh, these preachers that claim the gift of healing. Uh, every time they do anything by way of healing, there's no way to verify it. There's no way to say, oh, I see. I see it happening right in front of my eyes. Like Jesus when he said to the man with a withered hand, stretch forth your hand. And immediately it was just like the other one. Deformed one moment, just like the other one the next. Now you show me one miracle worker in our day that does that. And I'll pause. (laughs) I'll listen. In fact, I should do more than that. I should go, wait a minute. They've got a message I need to hear because this is something that God does. Well, I want you to consider how this is such an astounding miracle. First of all, the deplorable condition of this man. Uh, Luke, the physician, describes him in verse eight in this way. A certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a crippled from his mother's womb who had never walked. He's without strength in his feet. Now, this means more than weakness. Sometimes my feet are weak. <laughs> I don't know why. Just sometimes I'm going down the stairs and I'm going, what's happening? My foot's weak, but I make it up and I make it down. But here there's no strength at all. No strength whatsoever to stand or to support his weight. And then he tells us that he'd been in this condition his entire life. It was from birth. Was it caused later in life or in his childhood or youthfulness by some accident or carelessness on his part? No, he was born this way. And then he also tells that he had never walked in his life. He had never, ever walked. His parents never had the joy of watching him go from an infant to crawling. And then from crawling to taking that first Beautiful step. They never saw that. Such a a, a wonderful blessing. They they were not, were unable to see. They didn't see him take that one wobbly step, and then another, and then another, and then in a week or so, he's walking straighter and faster. Never saw any of that. He never ever walked. He never took a first step. Here's something that we can so easily take for granted walking, the use of our our limbs, something so simple, something so common, and yet such a wonderful, wonderful blessing, a blessing that I'm sure we don't think about very much at all. That's one of the things I do appreciate about our our public thanksgivings, and sometimes it comes from the mouth of children where they're thanking the Lord for something so wonderful as water (laughs) or the ability to drink water or anything to taste things, we have so many blessings that we we don't enjoy that we don't give God thanks for. we enjoy them, but we take them so for granted. Matthew Henry said, we should take occasion here to thank God for the use of our limbs. I think that's a wonderful little application, thanking God for the use of our limbs. Uh, for for all of the many blessings, praise God from whom all blessings uh, come. Now, when's the last time you've actually thanked him? Thank God for something so simple and yet so wonderful. Well, this was his deplorable condition. He couldn't walk, but he could hear. And it says that in verse 9, he listened. This man heard Paul speaking. He heard Paul speaking. What what was Paul saying? Well, verse 7 tells us that they were preaching the gospel there. That is here in Lystra. They were preaching the gospel and he heard it. These men, Paul and Barnabas, they could walk. And they walked a long, long way to tell the folks there in Lystra and Derby the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he's there. He's listening. And Paul, it says, notices him. Not just in passing, but it says he observed him intently. We don't know what he saw, or I guess we do know what he saw. It says he's seeing that he had faith. He saw his faith. Now, we know what he saw, but we don't know how he saw it. How do you see faith? How do you see faith? I can look across each and every one of you, and I don't know if you're believing or you're not believing. I have no way of knowing, do I? Well, Paul notices him. He saw this man's faith. Jesus saw the centurion's faith, didn't he? Uh, And he said this, I've not found such great faith, no, not in all Israel. But he saw his faith based upon what he heard the man say. And how the man responded. And he could see his humility and so forth. And he saw by his actions his faith. And that's what James tells us. Uh, You show me your faith, I'll show you my works. My works demonstrate my faith. Now in this case, the only thing Paul witnessed was this man sitting there listening to his message. Was it the look on his face? Well, I'm sure he was awake. (laughs) If he's listening, he has to be awake. Maybe he became emotional. The tears in his eyes. Some, though, suggest, and it is probably, that this was revealed to Paul by supernatural revelation. That God allowed him to see that he had faith. Well, we really don't know. Now, the New King James here says that he saw that he had faith to be healed. The word for healed, though, can be also translated saved. He had faith to be saved. He was listening to Paul and they were preaching the gospel. So he heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message was the message of grace. It was a message about God and about sin and about salvation. It was a message about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing here to indicate that Paul was preaching about being healed. Now, maybe you heard that back in Iconium, he was healing people. Well, we don't know, but uh, it says that he at least had the faith to be saved. Now, he he he, he understood uh, the message of salvation, the message about the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was he who came to this world and what he had done for sinners and how he died on the cross to pay for our sins, the, the wages of sin is death. And he was put to death, and God raised him from the dead, and he lives forever. And this man, it says, believed it. He believed what he was saying. Paul saw that he had faith. But then in verse 10, we see the actual healing where it says, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up and walk. Stand up straight on your feet. There's a very large crowd here, we're told. They were all there listening to Paul preach. And so Paul said this in a very loud voice. Loud enough not only for this man to hear, but for everyone to hear. Remember, this is a sign from God. He's going to bear witness that what he's saying is the truth of God. And he wants everybody to know what he's about to do. This wasn't done in a corner. It was done right in in the open. It's a sign and wonder that the Lord was bearing witness to the word of grace that He was preaching. And so He did it publicly for all to see and for all to hear. So he, He said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. The healing was both instantaneous and complete. He stood up. Now, if you've ever been When you get older, you'll understand this, but you sit down for a while in a certain position and then you go to get up and it's not so easy to get up. Well, he'd been sitting for all his life and he's now told to stand up. And he had no strength at all at his legs. What a thing to command a man who has never in his entire life stood on his feet, stand up straight. Well, here I do agree with Matthew Henry that this is a marvelous illustration of what God has done when He saves sinners. They are guilty, vile, and helpless, as J.R. Packer said, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or to better their spiritual lot. And yet, God commands them to repent and believe the Gospel. The very thing they are incapable of doing because of their bondage and sin. Jesus Christ invites sinners, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And yet they will not come. In fact, Jesus says in one place, you cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But they will not come. Jesus said it was because they loved the darkness rather than the light and will not Come to the light. Augustine said, Give what you command, O Lord, and command whatever you will. That's what he does here. He commands him to stand up. Does he have the strength to stand up himself? No. But he commands him, and he gave him the power to do what he had commanded. Just like he does a sinner. Come unto me, all you weary and heavy laden. And then He grants them the power to come. And so they come, most freely being made willing by His grace. Give what you command and command whatever you will. And so it says He sprang up and began walking. What an amazing thing. It was mind-blowing. I tried to think of a word that would be appropriate, but all the words have been stolen and misused. You can't call it awesome because so is a skateboard. You can't call it amazing because everybody's amazing, but it was something that, when these men saw it, it was evidence. It was a God demonstrating that this is true. What these men are preaching must be true. Just as Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the things you do unless God is with him. That's a reasonable deduction. This isn't some sleight of hand. This isn't some uh, magician's trick. It isn't some con man calling himself a preacher saying you're healed when you're not. This is something that we must pay closer attention to. God has borne witness to these things and to the message of these men by these signs and wonders. And so there's the miracle. But then look at the response of the crowd in verses 11-13. through 13. It says, Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Laconian language the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, obviously, the people of Lystra were steeped in Greek and Roman mythology and in polytheism. They believed in many gods. Not just one god. They believed in many gods. And they had a god for everything. Their Greek mythology and Roman mythology contained stories of myths of various times when Their gods supposedly came down from Mount Olympus. Many scholars, though, have tied this particular response of the crowds here in Acts 14 to a classic work by someone called Ovid, who wrote something called the Metamorphosis. It's a story in which he he tells the story, it's a work in which he tells the story of the Roman gods Jupiter and Mercury which is the counterpart of the, the Greek gods of Zeus and Hermes, uh, Jupiter and Mercury, they took on the form of men and they came down uh, right to this very valley, they say, where Paul was preaching. These gods, they came down disguised as men to test men, to test the inhabitants of the city for their kindness and hospitality. However, they didn't find the local inhabitants to be so friendly to their guests, and they uh, finally, though they, they the last day, they uh, they visited a poor older couple, who showed them kindness and hospitality, and they they shared even though their meager possessions with them. Well, the next day, the these gods took the couple up to the top of a mountain, and they, proceed, they proceeded to send a great flood upon the people in the valley killing everyone who had been so unkind to them. And so these here in Lystra when they see what Paul has done they immediately identify them as the gods who have come down in the likeness of men. They look like men but they're really gods. And whatever they do they don't want to, they want to make sure that what happened before according to this mythology this fable Whatever happened before, according to their cunningly devised fable, doesn't happen again. And it says they called Barnabas Zeus, the chief god, and Paul they called Hermes because uh, that's the messenger god and because he was the chief spokesman, we're told. And so uh, word gets around very quickly and soon the priest of Zeus shows up and he's all ready and decked and ready and prepared to offer sacrifices with the rest of the people to these gods who have come down. That was the response of the crowd. But then we see the reaction of the missionaries to this response. It says in verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? So the first thing we see is they, the first thing they do is they try to stop them from offering these sacrifices, from worshiping them. When Paul and Barnabas saw what they were doing, now they may not have understood at first. Because the people were speaking in this other language that they probably didn't know. But soon they were able to tell what these men were doing. They figured it out. And their souls rose in quick and righteous revulsion at such a thought or an act. And they did everything in their power to stop these men in their tracks. Don't worship us was their message. It says in verse 14 that they tore their garments. Well, you tear your garments, your mom might get after you. Uh doesn't like you to get holes in the knees, and she doesn't want you to tear things apart. If you get in a fight at school and uh, you come home, you got some explaining to do. But they tore it as an expression of abhorrence. Uh, just like the, the, the publican who was standing in the temple, standing afar off. That was a sign of abhorrence of himself. He didn't feel worthy to come forward. And it says he was beating his breast. Something people do or did in that culture to express an abhorrence of something. That's what, that's what's going on here. They, they, they tore their garments, a sign of, of complete and utter abhorrence to the thought. Perish such a thought. Why are you doing such a thing? And we see this very reaction in scripture whenever a godly person or even an angel from heaven is offered worship that belongs to God alone. And all worship belongs to God alone. And they stop them at once. We see this throughout scripture. Don't worship me. I'm just a man. Or, or worship God. He's the one that you should worship. And so they redirect them to worship God and to Him alone they're to worship. The very first commandment of the Bible, of the Ten Commandments, is you shall have no other gods before me. My glory, says the Lord, I will not give to another. And besides this, these men had seen and heard what God had done to Herod a few chapters earlier. What God did to Herod when when the people began to praise him, saying, the voice of a God and not of a man. Remember when he stood there publicly dressed in his royal apparel and began to speak. And they said, the voice of a God and not of a man. And it says, the Lord struck him down and the worms ate his body. Why? Because he did not give glory to God. That's not an innocent little thing to worship something that is not God. And so they, they try in every way they can to stop them. And he goes on, he appeals to their reason. In verse 15, men, why are you doing such things? We also are men with the same nature as you. We're just men. When you think of the idea of of holding someone so high, even just in our esteem, let alone worship, that's folly too because they're men just like we are, men of like passions. They're not perfect as we might think in our minds. And you hold someone up high, they're going to fall somewhere along the line in your eyes because they aren't perfect. They're not God. But they said, look at us. We're just men just like you. There's no difference between us and you in that we're creatures of God. And and the, Creature is not to be worshipped. That's a sense of reason, of rationality here. He's appealing to their reason. Now notice that Paul here doesn't appeal to the Old Testament Scriptures as he did to the Jews and the God-fearers when he came into the synagogues. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. But that would mean nothing to them. They don't know the Scriptures. And it's not to say he didn't use the Scriptures at all. We don't know uh much of what he says here. We just know little parts of it. You see, with the Jews in the synagogue, he could assume they had this reference point of the Old Testament, which they were able to read each week and hear each week, and, and they believed in the one true God. These pagans, though, they had no such reference point. And so here he appeals to that book of natural revelation. The God has revealed himself in nature. We read of that in Romans 1, which I'll refer to in a moment. But but he reminds them that they are all fellow creatures of the same God. And then they try to redirect their thinking and their actions to worship the true and the living God. That's why they've been sent there, he says. And he speaks of the God of all creation notice he says in verse 15, middle of verse 15, he says, we are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all things that are in them. Uh, Now, stop and think for a moment. You say, well, they don't believe they believe in many gods, not one God. That's what their religion is. That's the expression of their idolatry. But they know that there is one God. Uh, They know this God, His eternal Godhead and power. That's what Paul says in Romans 1 that all men know this because God has made it known to them. He speaks of the God of all creation. The God to whom all men are answerable. It's in direct contrast to their many gods. He's not saying there's many gods or let's just call Zeus. uh, Let's call him God. No, it's the one true and living God set in in opposition to the many gods or in opposition. It's not many gods. It's one God. The one true and living God. He's pointing to, to that. We learned in our Sunday school class this morning that the gospel is, first of all, a message about God. And about our relationship to that one true and living God. Here in preaching to the Gentiles, he has to go back further. He could assume with the Jews they believe in one God and could take it from there. But here he has to bring them back to that fundamental point. There's one God, not many. There's only one. And He's the true and the living God. Why is that so important? J.I. Packer reminds us that this is where the gospel starts. That we, all men, as creatures, are absolutely dependent upon Him. And that He, as Creator, has an absolute claim on us. That's the relevance of the gospel itself. Because we've all been created by one God. One God didn't create the people in Europe. And one God the people in America. No, it's one God created all men everywhere. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the great floods. The world and all that is in it belongs to God because He created it. That establishes the fact that we're responsible to Him. This is God's world. <laughs> we don't look at it as God's world. It's not spoken of as God's world. In fact, men nowadays are speaking of it as our world. Our planet. We need to save our planet. This is all we've got. No, this is God's world. God's world. He made everything in it. And that's why you're responsible to Him. You may not like it, but He's the one who made you. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. And that's how people are acting. As though they made themselves. And they're accountable to no one. But Paul's bringing them back to this basic of all facts. No, you were created by God. And you're accountable to Him. Not only has God created us, but Paul goes on to show that He continues to sustain us through His good and gracious providence. He says in verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. They didn't have the revelation, the special revelation from God. They still had natural revelation. But what did they do with that according to what Paul says in Romans 1? They suppress it. They hold it down. They don't want anything to do with that. Nevertheless, verse 17 says, He did not leave Himself without witness. Wait a minute. They don't have the Old Testament Scriptures. But God continued to bear witness. How did He do this? In that He, God, did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful season, filling our hearts with food and gladness and so forth. So He's pointing them back. Not only did God create you, He sustains you day by day by day. This is what he says to the, the philosophers in Athens. In him that is in God, we live and move and have our being. He gives life and breath to all things. You're here because God not only made you, but he continues to sustain you. He's not a God who just made this world and wound it up and has let it go on its own. I remember either right before I became a Christian or right at that time when the Lord allowed some very horrible ideas to come into my mind about God. I was told that really this whole world was somehow created by some aliens. And this race was put here by aliens. And now they've just gone off and they've left a few artifacts along the way, and they've gone on to, to other worlds, I guess. But I remember walking outside and looking around the sunshine and the sunset, and I thought, this seems so empty now. If that's really what happened, there's not a God. We're just spinning in space. But that's not what Paul says, and that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what we know. We know that God continues to give us good things. He continues to bless us with things He continues to take care of the creation that He he has made. He points them, though, to the goodness of God. The very opposite of their gods. Their gods were capricious. Let's go down and see if they'll treat us okay, and if they don't, we're going to just kill them all. Uh, No, here's a God. He says He emphasized the goodness of God. He did good. This God, this God of all creation, is a good God. Good God. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, why is he telling them this? It's to remind them what this God has done for them. He says in Romans chapter 2, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God made you. God takes care of you. I think about the upcoming Thanksgiving services in which we can give public thanks. And children write down what they are thankful for. And it's just wonderful to read. You need to think, children. You adults need to think as well that these are reasons why I need to repent and come to Christ. Look what God's done for me. Look how God's blessed me. He's blessed me with a good family, a nice home. He's taken care of me. We were very sick and now we're better. All of these things are arguments of God to say you need to turn to Him. You need to believe in Him. So when you hear all the thanksgivings, every one of them should say, Oh, Lord, we need to... Repent and turn from our sins and turn to Christ and live for him, live for him who so graciously and lavishly takes care of us. The gospel we learned also is about sin, and he says, we bring to you good news back up there he he says uh in verse um fifteen he says, "Men, why are you doing these things? We are, all, are men in the same nat- with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all is in them. Who, in bygone generations, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, He did not leave Himself without a witness, and so forth." I'm sorry, I must have missed it up there. It's, uh, they ran. My, we're preaching to you. The grace uh, we're preaching you these words of grace, he says, and that's what we need to understand that this is the message they're bringing. Here are these souls lost in sin, walking in darkness, and he said, "We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God." Some people think that all oh, this is just harmless. Uh This you're just you're really infringing upon their their cultural norms and and every culture is different and beautiful and so forth. And and these things are harmless. And and what a horrible thing is for missionaries to come in and try to change all of that. As Paul was doing here, we're we're here to tell you to turn from these things. Oh, but we've got such wonderful, beautiful parades for our deities. We we dress up, we have feasts and we do all these beautiful, wonderful things no they're vain things he says and you need to turn from them these are nothing more than in the words of peter cunningly devised fables they're made up they're not true that's not harmless to believe something that isn't true that you're putting your life and your faith in the in a lie You're believing a lie. That's a horrible thing. When Paul in Romans 1 delineates this road to idolatry, uh, he begins really where he begins with the people of Lystra, that that God has revealed Himself in creation, even His eternal power and Godhead. And then he shows how sinful man suppresses God's truth. And he does this. He says, They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's an exchange going on here. And what men by nature have done, they've exchanged God's truth that they see everywhere in creation and they're exchanging it for a lie. These ideas, this, this idea that the gods have come down and now we need to sacrifice to them. Is that a noble thing? No, that's an awful thing. Here are men created in the image of God who are totally unreasonable. And idolatry is unreasonable and is foolish. That here's a person living for something that can't even save them. They mock. uh, The Bible mocks idolatry. Here, you take a, a tree and you chop it down and you drag it back to your place and you, you carve it up and you, you make an image and you set it up and then you bow down before it. How unreasonable is that? That's absolute foolishness. And yet, every form of idolatry is such foolishness. Everywhere you look, what men put their trust in, their hope in, the things they fear, it's foolish. It's absolute foolishness. Whether it's a person they're putting their trust in or a thing that they're living for. They live for money. The Bible says money has wings and flies away. Money you can't take with you. No matter how much you've got in the bank, when it's time to die, it stays in the bank and then your relatives fight over it. There's no help in that. There's no help in that. People trust in their, their, they trust in physical things and exercise. And they exercise and they exercise and exercise. And sooner or later, the batteries start wearing out. <laughs> and things start falling apart. No matter how much. And I was reading an article that they, they're hoping that they can, uh, with, with some changes and things, that men can live to be 150 years old in the near future. Well, even if they could, You know what? 150 years, it'll feel like it went by just like a dream. Just like 80 years. (laughs) It'll all go by quickly. And then what do you have? There's still nothing at the end of this road. It's a dead end. All forms of idolatry are dead ends when you look at it. Vain things. And these missionaries are there to turn them away from that foolishness, from those vain things, the worship of This world's idols, and to turn to the true and living God, the very God who made this world and all that is in it, the God who sent his Son into this world to save sinners, that they can know this one true and living God. Is there anything more important than knowing the true and living God? Is there? God has sent them the good news of salvation. common observation that man is a religious creature. He's a worshiper. And this is evident wherever you turn, even from the most backward tribes to the most sophisticated cities, we all stand like Paul in the great city of Athens and we say, I perceive that you're in all things very religious. He could say that here in Lystra. They're religious. And yet that was no evidence whatsoever that they were truly seeking after God. In fact, Their idols or their objects of worship were monumental proofs of their corruption. Since the fall, men are like sheep that have gone astray. His mind is darkened. His understanding is darkened. His affections are all twisted and estranged from God. He doesn't love the true and living God. He would rather love something made up in his own mind. The God of his imagination. His will is turned away from the one true and living God. And he goes after the things that are not God. And in Romans 1, it says that they exchange God's truth for a lie. That's not a bargain, you know. And you say, well, but it's my truth. No, if it's not true, it's a lie. You can call it my truth all day long. You say, well, this is my truth. My truth doesn't mean anything. That's just a new sophisticated way to make you feel all right about whatever you do or whatever you believe or whoever you think you are. Truth is true, falsehood is lies. The cause of idolatry is the sinfulness and corruption of the human heart. But what Paul is saying here is we're here, we're sent here to tell you to turn away from these things to the living God. That's the great exchange. The other exchange Paul talks about, that's a horrible exchange. The truth of God for a lie? No, here he's telling them to exchange the lie for the truth. Now that's a good deal. That's the deal you want to have. They turned to God. Paul said about the Thessalonians, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and the living God and to wait for His Son from heaven. And they even saw the miracles that proved what they were saying was true. And yet they had nothing to do with it, did they? We'll see how their, their response. But it says here, notice in verse 18, and with these sayings, they could scarcely... Restrained the multitudes from sacrificing to them. What a what a horrible condition they were in. Uh, this is how this is how depraved they were. Even with rational arguments, reasonable arguments, they had the miracles to prove that they were what they were saying was true, and they could scarcely restrain them. That's how depraved men's hearts are. They're stubborn stubbornly determined To hold on to their foolishness. Jesus said they love darkness rather than light. Where are you? How about you? Are any of these things restraining you from following your idols? So that idol may be a person. Maybe someone that you're holding before God. anything you put before God... Whether it's a person, a thought, a bank account, a dream, whatever you think. If you put it before God, that's your God. The sad truth is you don't want to give that up. But Jesus says repent. Jesus says to turn from those vain things. Turn to me. Come unto me. God says, why are you... Why are you putting all your hope in something that can't even save you? Turn to me and I'll save you. I sent my son into this world to save you from your sins. Come to me, he says. That's our only hope. Don't look to the vain things of this world. Look to him. Look to the truth of God. That should be your only hope. Here these men were that left and... and they kept sacrificing to their gods. What a sad story. When the words of eternal life were right there. But they would rather starve than come. How about you? Are you? Would you rather starve than come to His great feast? Would you rather believe a lie because it just makes you feel good or makes you fit in with those around you? Or do you want the truth? The truth as it is in Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way. He's the only way to be made right with God. You can't be made right with God with any other religion. They'll tell you you can by works, but then they delve right back into this kind of foolish talking about gods who are happy if you sacrifice or you quit eating butter or you do this and that, that the God will be happy. That's foolishness. Jesus Christ is the only way for lost sinners like you and like me to find hope, to be reconciled to this God with whom we all have to do. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven,